0: Welcome to Grief Recovery Now podcast. I'm your host, Charlene Gorzella, your grief recovery specialist. This podcast is being produced just for you, someone who has been challenged and heartbroken over a significant and devastating loss, death, divorce, sudden life change, or the many other ways we experience grief. You will be taken on a conversational journey with me and some special guests who have come out the other side of grief and committed to small, powerful, and courageous steps that made all the difference in their lives, for the better. I want to instill in you on what is possible, that joy, hope, peace, and happiness is closer than you think. While your life is forever changed, you can have a beautiful new outlook on your relationships and loss with a sense of completion that goes deep in your soul. Ready, set, now. Let's get started. Hello everybody, this is Charlene Gorzella here, your host for Grief Recovery Now podcast. So happy you're with us today. Every time I do this podcast and I record this podcast, before we do all the editing and all that good stuff and prepare it to be launched, I really get an enthusiastic state within me. And I think it's because I just want to be in service to you all. And as I'm being of service to you, I'm being of service to my own authentic self. And it's sort of like that law of circulation. So, this is part of my purpose. Our listeners, whether you feel you're on purpose, off purpose, you're in extreme grief. I don't know anything about grief that much, but I know something's not, something's a little off, or I have a friend who's just not getting out of bed and they just had some significant losses you know, you're there to serve them. So please share this podcast with anyone. We're all over the world. This is a podcast that is a come as you are podcast. Sit back, relax, or not relax, but just just listen and just know that we're here just for you. Before I introduce our guests at every podcast, I talk a little bit about some things that are on my mind, What is grief recovery? The experiences that are going on in the world regarding losses, trauma, PTSD, things that are, you know, we still have COVID going on. This is another level of COVID. We thought it was over. Now it's not. Just tune into yourself, like, what is happening during this time? What is this uncertainty that I'm going through? What is some losses that I'm experiencing? I had some friends who were looking forward to going back to the office in September and October. Now they can't. These were young people, people who are older, middle-aged, whatever, even school that were expecting to go back. And then now they're not. They have to pivot again. Last year, people were talking about pivoting. People were like, I'm sick of hearing about pivot. I got to pivot through all these changes going on in COVID, the The losses that we're experiencing, and sometimes the losses we haven't even identified yet. I've talked about in the past about secondary relationships. I know when I was going to an office every day, the person at Starbucks, the little restaurants I would get some food from, lunch, or take home to go after work, to go eat at home after a long day. And I miss those relationships. We used to watch The Bachelor and Bachelorette in my office. There was a lot of women who worked in my office. And so we were all bond over some of these shows that were on TV, even if it's law and order or dancing with the stars or whatever it is, people, we connect and talk about it. So we would bond. Well, that is gone. Sure. We'd have zoom meetings at work and all that, but it's different. We're not connecting physically or eye to eye in the flesh. Energetically, there is a big difference. So if that is happening for you today, please remember Just breathe it in and maybe just take a piece of paper and pen. And I always tell people, please write with a pen and paper. There's something magical that goes on. You may be on your computer, but please don't. This kind of writing is the the higher consciousness speaking through you. So even if you can work with pencil because it's wood, so please use that. That's even better. But a pen works too. So just write losses. Who do I miss? And maybe give someone you worked with a call and talk to them and say hello. That's all you have to start off with to connect to each other. I have friends who are isolators and they were just thrilled about the isolation prospect of COVID. This was at the beginning. They go, Hey, I love it. I get to stay home. But I think they're, I believe they're getting a little tired of it too. And even to just get themselves out and say yes to life outside. There's nothing wrong with being an introvert. I'm an extrovert. I like to go out. I like to meet people. I get energy from other people. I'm with my peers at work or whatever organization I'm involved with. I love the hugs and all that. And I do miss that. And as I said, if you're an introvert, I'm sure you missed some things in the outside world today. We've had some freedom for a while, but now we have to pull back. At least some of it. I don't know where you live. We're all over the world. But I think we are all affected by what's going on with COVID and even the losses we've had with some of the things going on politically, um, Afghanistan, horrors, you know, everywhere. We're being bombarded with so much today. How do we stay in the light? How do we stay in our moment and create joy where we are in spite of everything that's going on around us? Let's create our own happiness. And so our guest today is, going, is a person who talks about grief and how to be in that happiness. And I wanted to talk about one more thing, is what is grief recovery? Grief recovery It's first, the awareness many people have that recovery from a significant emotional losses, they didn't even know if it was possible. Grief, recovery, how does that coexist? One thing that I want to share with you is recovery does not mean I forget my loved one. Or sometimes you may want to forget about an unloved one. But I also believe that every person in our life will help us grow to our greater yet to be. So they're all gifts, even though it doesn't feel that way. And I'm not trying to hamper the trauma that may have gone on with an unloved one. But my goal as a grief recovery specialist is to help you know even what is recovery. This is what I know. There's a lot of incomplete and unresolved issues that are going on in our losses, especially to our loved ones, whether it be a mother, father, sister, brother, someone you're married to for many years and get a divorce, husband that may have passed away, and there's some incompleteness and unresolved there. Our goal at the Grief Recovery Method is to help you get resolved in the unresolved and complete in the incomplete When you're grieving or sad, it doesn't mean that you lack courage. You just don't have the correct information. Some of the things we cover are forgiveness, apologies, significant events that we help share through this educational modality called grief recovery method. So it helps. I'm a facilitator through that. And there's some therapeutic approach to it, but it's really educational. And it gets you through when I say grief recovery now. It can happen in a shorter time than you think, even as a complicated as you think your grief is or all your grief is, or even just one significant relationship or 10 of them, this can help and simplify it. I'm into that. How about you? So now's the time for our awesome guest today. Emily Thoreau Threat is the author of Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief, a comprehensive guide to reclaiming and cultivating joy and carrying on in the face of loss. Having gone through the experience of two husbands die, as well as the deaths of her father, mother, sister, many family members, and friends, Emily has much experience in the grieving process and has learned to face life with love, optimism, and joy. Her mission is to comfort and support those dealing with grief and loss, focusing on happiness. She earned a master's degree in English with a concentration in writing, which led to her career teaching writing at the university level, so she naturally turned to writing to deal with her grief. She also is teaching those dealing with loss how to use writing to deal with their grief. When she's not writing, you can find her tending to her garden, creating art, and walking on the beach. Help me welcome Emily. Hi, Emily. Aloha. So happy to be here. Happy to have you here. And aloha means that Emily lives in Hawaii. Where in Hawaii do you live, Emily? I live on Maui. Oh, that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I was in Maui and I was running one day and I swear to God, I wanted to kiss the ground and say, thank you. So how beautiful that you live there. You're here today. I feel like you're one of my peers. You have experience in extreme traumatic grief, and extreme loss, and you have something within you that wants to be of service to the griever.
1: That's right.
0: We're going to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. In a personal nature, please share about yourself and that, and then we'll talk more about your professionalism and and what part of your purpose is and how you can be there for our listeners today.
1: Okay, I can do that my most recent losses have been two husbands and my sister and it, as much as you know something's coming it's still not like anything you've experienced before it, with with each one of them each each loss is different so you can anticipate it but you don't really know what's going to happen and when my husband died i was i was married to him for 22 years and we had a great relationship he was a wonderful man he ironically was a philosophy professor whose specialty was living and dying and taught the required class on that to all the nursing students at the college where he worked. So we had lots of talks about that. He facilitated a bereavement group because there weren't any other ones in town and he saw a need for it. So I was kind of tuned or thought of things like this for for a long time. And also kind of strangely, as much as the the last couple of years of his life, he was declining and having lots and lots of health challenges. He didn't really, it didn't dawn on him that he was actually dying. I think he thought he was going to the doctor to get better every time he'd go to the doctor. And he was really shocked when he died. The, the, the last words he said to me, he just was absolutely shocked. So I thought, I'm not, it served him because of his personality, because that way, without living like he was dying. He was living like he was alive and enjoying his life. So that was good. But I was pretty lost after he died.
0: What was that like for you, Emily, witnessing someone you love, knowing that he has, I think it was congestive heart failure going Mm -hmm. on. What was that The year or two before, or I don't know how many years it happened. What was it like for you as someone who witnessed your beloved walking through that? already knowing it you may have been as optimistic as he was but he, you know were you talking to the doctors can you talk a little more personally about that experience yeah I, I actually had a lot of
1: experience with death and dying with the ambulance company my parents owned that i worked on from the age of 14 so and the people were dying there all the time and consequently i went into one of my first careers was nursing And I did that for a while, where I had a lot to do with that. So when I was helping or being with my husband Jacques, I knew how I liked to be treated as a patient. By well, I would treat patients, and I could see what they responded to. So I always tried to be in the present and be loving and not judging him or anything that was going on, and try to find solutions to whatever challenges that he was having. And so we were actively involved in each other's lives during this time and it made it so that we were both busy I guess I'd say enough <laughs> that we didn't have to sit there and focus on oh gee when's he going to die or this is horrible or something we we didn't do that so when he did die I, I was really pretty lost and we had had we were very prominent in the community and had so many friends and acquaintances and, uh, When he first got sick, when he first had his first heart surgery, people came out in droves and, you know, brought flowers and visited, visited in the hospital, visited at home. were always doing something for us. The longer he was sick, the more they faded away. They'd say things like, let me know when I can do something for you. And if I called and they didn't answer and I left a message, they didn't call back (laughs) because they just, I had to come to grips with the fact that they couldn't deal with him dying and they were doing it by staying away. So the, the last uh, last bit of time that he was around, uh, like the last year, we were pretty much alone And until eventually a, an angel, a, a friend of mine from right after junior high school, showed up on my doorstep and stayed with me for the last few months. Uh, she, she came down from Alaska and we hadn't seen each other in years, but she could see what was going on. And she just moved in and stayed with me and helped me take care of her for the last few months and for a few months afterwards. So I don't know what I would have done without her.
0: I was wondering, you talked about, you didn't judge him. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about not judging your husband or judging or not judging your friends who didn't have the capacity to show up for you? And what I want to get at is those little nooks and crannies that you remember even 10 or 20 years later Mm -hmm. that affect you. And I'm doing that for a reason. So if you can share a little bit, even through the dying process. Mm -hmm. Or judging no. take care of himself. You're not eating right. That kind of stuff.
1: Well, I, I had my dad was overweight in his later years. And my mom used to criticize him all the time. And I knew that they loved each other deeply, but I just couldn't stand the way she talked to him. And it was an example for me that I was never going to do that. And in doing that, I couldn't have judged my mom for behaving that way because she was doing the best she could. With with what she knew and how she'd been brought up, and Dad was doing the best he could in dealing with his health the way he did, and so releasing the judgment toward them made it easier for me to identify if I started to judge someone else, and I could I could start to judge Jacques, for instance, when he had his heart first heart surgery. Uh, they discovered that he was diabetic and put him on insulin while I was in the hospital with the heart surgery. And he was furious about it. And I said, well, you know, there's something you can do about that. (laughs) If you want to eat well and walk and go to cardiac rehab and do all that, then you can do something about it. And he said, great. And he did. He knocked himself out. He went to cardiac rehab. He walked every day. I I walked with him for a long time until he felt comfortable walking on his own. And then he kind of wanted to be able to walk on his own. And he ate really well. I cooked really well. I'd cooked really well before he just ate a whole lot of it. So <laughs> I was following good, healthy guidelines for him. But he got to the point where he missed his food. He missed being able to have a cocktail every evening. He, he wanted, he just, it was just one drink, but it was hard alcohol. And you don't really need to have a drink every evening, but he missed that. And he decided that he, he wanted to do that. And so he gradually started doing things like that. He had gotten himself off of insulin by following all the rules and he worked his way back on to insulin by stopping all the exercise and eating the things he wasn't supposed to be having. And I thought, okay, if I were in his shoes, how would I need to be treated? And I just treated him with, with love. I I couldn't judge him. It, at one point when he, when I first found out he had to go back on insulin, I was, I got kind of upset. I got to admit <laughs> that he had done that to himself. And as soon as I said that, I said, what are you doing? You know, it's it's not your place to judge. It's it's my place to love my husband and support him and take care of him. And I would give him the diet he needed. I'd drive him to cardiac rehab, whatever it is that, that he needed, we would do. But I didn't judge him when he didn't do it, because that's what he wanted at that point in his life. And he knew He solidly knew what the consequences would be and he he chose to do it anyway. And I figure he's making a conscious choice. I did feel kind of a responsibility to to make sure that he had all the facts to make those choices by, but he made that those choices on his own. And I supported him in it because that's what he wanted. So I I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, it does.
0: It does. You never know if somebody's walking through that right now and there may Mm -hmm. well be one or two or more walking through that, no matter what the relationship is. How about, um, and then after he passed. I, I was
1: just playing alone for a while. My, I went back to teaching at the university and I really liked that, but I, I would teach and then I would come home and mostly sit. I wasn't, I wasn't ready to read or watch TV or do anything and friends weren't calling and I wasn't going any place. And I, it was months that I really didn't do much of anything. And finally, uh, New Year's Eve came and I thought, okay, I've got to do something. Resolutions haven't worked for me in the past. I'm not going to make a big long list of things that I can't or won't do, but I'm going to sit here and meditate until I know exactly what it is I'm, I'm supposed to have to my, for my intention for the next year. So I did. And what came to me surprised me. But it came to me after I said I wanted it and went through the process to find it. And what it was, was to accept invitations. And I thought, well, that's nuts. Nobody's inviting me to do anything or inviting me anywhere. So that's not going to work. I said that. And then I thought, no, you said you're going to do what came to you. So I did. And my world opened up. I couldn't believe it because I had made a commitment that I would say yes if somebody invited me to do something and I had opportunities that I would never have thought about before. It wasn't that I was looking forward to these new different things. It was that they were falling in my lap, and I was saying yes, and the more I got involved in the different things that I accepted, the more I was engaged in the world again, and was able to take a breath, and look forward, and take better care of myself, because in in grief, self-care is one of the very most important things you can do. And I realized that I wasn't doing that, that just sitting around isn't good (laughs) self-care. So once I started accepting, the invitations were wild and wide and varied. The the first one was the editorial board of the newspaper, which uh, served Kern County, which is one of the biggest counties in the country, actually bigger than several states. They asked me to be on their editorial board, And I'd never thought about doing anything like that before, but it was so interesting. It was a year-long term, and I met so many people and learned so much about our community and where I lived and was able to make decisions about what the community was going to see in the news about everything that was going on. So that was pretty exciting. And then the Regional Medical Center came to me and asked me to be on their bioethics committee, and Jacques had been on it as a professional. But I couldn't take his place, but a place opened up for somebody who was a a lay person that they needed to be on the the board. And they thought because I was affiliated with Jacques that I would be a good choice. And that was so interesting. Learned so much. And you're, you're making decisions for life and death decisions for people. And I went to South Africa with a friend. She was taking her sister and I said, Oh, that sounds like fun. And she said, well, then come with us. And I thought, okay, she's that's an invitation. <laughs> I have to say yes. Oh. Amazing, amazing trip. And I worked uh, as a nurse on the race across America bicycle challenge that they had every year. And my, my trainer had set records on that every year for many years and he needed somebody on his crew and, I didn't know anything about bicycle riding, but I could do the kind of nursing that it took to do that sort of thing. So I started across the country with them at 25 to 30 miles an hour around the clock. And it was really fascinating, fascinating journey.
0: And, and I could
1: go on and on. Can All I these ask things you just something? Kept coming.
0: Sure. Don't, I don't mean to interrupt you because no, I know you fine. have so many great stories on saying yes to the ask and your intentions before mm-hmm. that. And not everyone will. Please um, bear with me as I explain this. It sounds very metaphysical. And if anybody wonders, it's not like any kind of religious thing or not. It's really science, physics. Metaphysical means beyond the physical. So you wrote down or you claimed, whether it's just in your head. Did you write it down? I'm going to say yes. I did write it down so I could remember it. Okay. Yeah. So sometimes just uh, just for our listeners, when you write something down, And just be your authentic self. You'll be amazed that whatever you believe in, this is not a spiritual program or religious program. There's aspects to it all because we have all kinds of guests on the show. And please keep your mind open. Emily's sitting at her house. She's in the, she's in the grieving process. It's okay, it's beautiful. It's part of it. If you're just sitting at home doing nothing, that's part of the recalibration. That's another thing. Like there's beyond the physical is happening. And when you write something down, just write it and let it go. Mm -hmm. And that was what happening with Emily. I see it proven more and more times. It's like something, like don't try to figure it out intellectually. Go in your heart. And, you know, go on Google, talk to your friends if if you can. Or, you know, if you're more isolating, trust what's going on within. There's more going on than you think. So write something like that. I'm going to say yes to invitations. I'm going to say yes to good food. If all of a sudden you've been home for months and all of a sudden you're gaining weight, I'm going to say yes and let it go and just trust and see what happens. So Emily, thank you for sharing that. And I felt the need that I needed to just explain it. Does this sound right to you? Do you want to add on to that?
1: Absolutely. No, I, I really like that. It's it's important that that people understand that it's basically when when you decide that you're you're going to do something, it's already done. If you, if you actually decide that and you just have to pay attention and like when the invitations would come to me, I had to say, yeah, if that's an invitation, I have to say yes. yes. And, and it was just great. And I still do that and still have cool experiences from saying yes. And I, I, I can also say no, I don't have to say yes, because sometimes there are things that aren't in my best interests at that point in time or that aren't in my best interests in general. Like right now, I've been so busy with the book and all that's going on around that, that I don't have enough time to adequately put into something. If somebody asked me to do something that's very time consuming that I would love to do instead of saying yes, because I would love to do it. I say, you know, I wouldn't it wouldn't be in your best interest for me to commit right now because I wouldn't do the kind of job that you need to have done because of my time commitment. But keep me in mind for in the future. So it's okay to answer the way that's most appropriate for you. And you just have to pay attention to yourself and pay attention to your heart and to your calendar and decide what's going to serve you best as well as serve whoever's talking to you.
0: Yes. It happens when I have my clients, I tell them before, since you made a decision to say yes to work with me, things are going to be happening Mm -hmm. even before our first session. And I'm sure with some of your work, I know you're creating some stuff here. We're going to talk Mm -hmm. about it at the end of our time here. And so anything you say yes to, no, something's percolating. So I'm excited for you already. Well, thank you. (laughs) You You and our listeners. For the listeners, yeah. It's fabulous. So here you are, Emily. Mm -hmm. Your husband passed. Then you're saying yes to life. And then you find another love. You experience another beautiful love. And Emily has three three names she uses, Emily Thoreau Threat, which is so beautiful. And her husband's last name was Threat. Can you talk about that experience and knowing that he died also? Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? You met him. Were you afraid to love again after you met him? I just, like, oh, my God, I, I don't want that loss again.
1: I I, I wasn't really afraid. I just didn't. I wasn't even considering it because I had a nice 22 year marriage with Jacques, and he was fabulous. And his last name was Thoreau. That's where the, I was Thoreau for 22 years. Yeah. So when uh, I got married to Ron, I kept Thoreau as my middle name. And now that Ron's gone, I just use both of them all the time. Cause I, I love both of them. I always will, but I, I wasn't, I can't say I was afraid to be in another relationship. I just, it wasn't, in my frame of reference. I wasn't even thinking about it. And it was one of those say yes things where one of my friends kept saying, it's time for you to date again. And I said, uh, no. <laughs> he said, I have no idea how to do that or find somebody or anything. And, and every time i would run into her, she'd say, well, you need to go on match.com. And I kept telling her she was crazy. <laughs> but I thought, okay, I did make a commitment to say yes. And she said this to me so many times. Why is she doing that? We don't even usually see each other that often during the year for her to see me that many times and say the same thing. I thought I'm going to listen. So I decided before I went on that I would write this big long list of everything that I would require in a new relationship, (laughs) because I figured if I had a huge big list that nobody would fit that. You were saying yes to all those things you're writing. Yeah. <laughs> so I write all those things down and then I wrote my bio and I put it on And the very first evening. a um, so Thursday evening, I put my bio on and I started looking at the guys uh, that were on there and the guys that were, I've got, I don't even know why I'm here because I have nothing in common with them at all. And then I ran across Ron and it turned out that he had joined match.com that day and it turned out that he was every single thing on my list. And since I had decided that if I met somebody that was every single thing on my list, that I would at least meet him, you know, go out with him. And he, he was. And so by Sunday we went out to dinner, and we were together till he died. After that, ten years later. So it was, yeah, uh, cool. you know, it was really good. It was it was one of those things of just following because I I didn't have to go on Match.com. I'm not sure it's the right thing. For everybody, and I never dreamed it would be right for me. I just didn't think that it was the sort of thing that I'd do, but it was perfect for me, and I was glad that I said yes.
0: Well, that's how I met my boyfriend, through Match.com, right before COVID. So you never know, just put yourself out there somehow with your friends or Match.com or what if you're looking for someone. This is not a dating mm-hmm. show or an ad for Match.com. Yeah. And Emily, so you're in a relationship with another beloved that you mm-hmm. love that so much. That you saw fit for your life. What happened when he forgot first diagnosis? Was this and there were similar diagnoses, correct?
1: They they both had the same diagnosis. They both had congestive heart failure, and that, that led to kidney failure, which led to dialysis for both of them. They both had that same journey, and it was like oh, here we go again. However, I'd learned a lot by taking care of Jacques with questions to ask, things to do, things not to do. So. It was like it was an education on my way to the next experience. And and I was grateful for the education, not that we had to go through that, but so that I could recognize things and know what's important and what's not. And a difference with, well, I was going to say that Ron didn't really pay attention that much to his illness because it wasn't that significant to him, if that makes sense. To him Can you explain li- that a little I mean, bit, what that means? Yeah. To him, living every moment was significant. And in that moment, he was fine. He was healthy. He wasn't in pain at that particular moment, whatever moment it was. And uh, we were together. We were smiling. We were doing things that we enjoyed, even if it had to be while we're both sitting down and not walking around because he didn't have any energy. We still were were focused on the present. And that doesn't mean we didn't take care of, of the physical things. We did take him to the hospital when he needed to go to the hospital when he couldn't breathe, and that that happened frequently, ending up in ICU. But he didn't resist going and he didn't resist coming home. He wanted to do whatever was in his best interest at the time. And it, it really, we actually moved here to Maui two years before he died because he'd lived here years before. And he said he really wanted to, he didn't actually say it, but I knew it from the conversations that we'd been having that he really wanted to spend his final days here because he loved it so much. So even though I, we were in what I thought was my forever home with all these wonderful friends and living in Ventura, California, I just absolutely loved what I was doing and where I was living. But we sold it all and came to Maui and had two really wonderful years together here. And in in the process with him, the one one thing that was a big challenge for me was he he chose he first went on regular dialysis, and they, they said told him that if he wanted to do his own dialysis at home, he could do that, and he would just do it at night when he was asleep and be free in the daytime. And he was thrilled by that. He said, "I can live my life exactly the way I want to." But immediately, as soon as he started doing it, we knew it it wasn't working. That it was his body was having a bad reaction to it. And we never did convince the doctors that that was happening. And his symptoms got worse and worse and worse. And we kept talking to the doctors and say, oh, and they go, no, that won't won't do that. It must be something else. Or not listening was was frustrating for them to not listen. And so when it it got closer to time that he wasn't going to be here, he he could tell that I was frustrated by what was going on. He goes, you know, what you can do is when you've got time in, in the future, and which I knew what he was saying by saying that he said, document it all and get it to anybody who needs to see it so that other people don't have to go through what we went through. And so I did. After he died, that was a big campaign I went on for a while to make sure everybody, the people who man- manufactured the dialysate, the dialysis center, the doctors, everybody the nutritionist all all the people got all the facts and a lot of them uh called and like did a deposition with me because I think they thought I was going to sue them, but I wasn't but they they actually were asking very detailed questions that could help them make it so that somebody else didn't have to go through what he went through and so instead of judging the people that really didn't know that what they were doing was that harmful because they'd never experienced it before. They hadn't seen it written down before, so they, they didn't know. I could have been angry at them and judged them, but that wouldn't have helped anybody. It would have just made us angry and miserable, and that wasn't where we wanted to be. So I I took care of it by doing that and then releasing it. Once I did that, I didn't have to think about it anymore. It was done. I knew I had done a good thing, and I was really knowing that I was helping somebody else down the road. So that's Thank another you. case of not judging. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, there's a theme here, which I appreciate and respect you so much for it. Admire you for that. And what was it like the end right before and right after? These are for the grievers, like step by step. You've had two beloveds pass among other beloved husbands. mm -hmm. It happened. I know I had just read something in in a podcast before you coming on or that's going to be launched. I talked about, were you quiet afterwards? People talk about they just get up as soon as the person passes or transition or dies and starts doing things. Did you get really quiet around him? What was your little, your ritual? You know, what was different about your first husband to your second husband on when he died? Can you talk a little bit? What did you do right afterwards? This is when someone's like right in the middle of this or at the end.
1: Yeah, they were both similar and different at the same time. Because though we all knew the shape that Jacques was in and that it wasn't going to last forever, we didn't know when it was going to come. And he was an author. He'd written a textbook that was published in 1975 that is, is still being used today around the world in ethics. And he would, every two to three years, do a revision of the textbook for the publishing company. And he had been working on his last revision for longer than he was supposed to. He, he really passed his dead top line, but it was very difficult for him to type. So we were working on it together. And that was one of the things that we focused on. And, and what was
0: that about? What was it?
1: The uh, ethics theory and practice mm-hmm. to, to teach uh, students what ethics are and how to live an ethical life, knowing the difference between right and wrong, that sort of thing. So we, it was the first time that we were able to submit the revision electronically before we used to print tons of pages and mail them. And it was a big pain. So we were very excited and we shipped it off and called his editor and talked to her and we celebrated, you know, it was, it was really cool. And he was in such a good mood and it was really, really nice. And after that, that was in the morning after that, I I fixed him lunch before I was going to take him to dialysis. And when we were eating lunch, he he said, am I going to die And in that instance, here's a brilliant man that has dealt with living and dying his whole life. He he had to know the answer to that, but he hadn't acknowledged it until that point. And we were always honest with each other. And I had to answer yes. And within about less than an hour after that, I was helping get him in the car to take him to dialysis and he was gone just like that. And he, he looked at me with this like shocked look on his face and said, oh, and then a Word that I shouldn't say on a podcast, and it. that was it. It was he said, "Oh shit," and that was it. He just kind of went limp after he said that, and he was gone.
0: And what did you do? So you, wait, wait, don't go.
1: Yeah. What did he well, say? I didn't know what to do because we had uh, durable power of attorney for healthcare, and he had chosen to not be resuscitated because of his health conditions. And I know that that was his wish, and it was a legal document. On the document, and that I knew that I didn't have any right to do anything. But he was sitting on the edge of the seat with his feet out on the the driveway and in the car when this happened. And I, I was trying to move him in a way that he would be there so I could go call somebody and get help or something. And he actually slid off the seat in between the dashboard and the seat and was stuck. And there was no way I could get him out. And I thought, Well, he's confirming for me that he doesn't want to be resuscitated because there's no way you could resuscitate a person in a position like that. But at the same time, I couldn't just sit there with my husband in a car in the driveway. Mm -hmm. So I didn't I couldn't think of anybody else to call. we would made funeral arrangements, but he wasn't pronounced dead. So you couldn't call the mortuary. And so I called 911. And when they got there, I said, he has a DNR. I just can't get him out of the car. And, you know, there's, it's not physically possible for me to do it. And even though I told them he had a do not resuscitate, they it took four big burly firemen to get him out of the car from the position he was in. And they laid him on the driveway and started doing CPR. And I said, no, don't do that. And they did it anyway. So I, I felt bad about that because I felt like you know, I, I had promised him I would follow his wishes. And I did, but they didn't.
0: And the grieving process afterwards, your first husband after that, when,
1: when I got home after that, it was very still, I was very quiet and wasn't really thinking or anything. And then my friend who was staying with us, um, came in and, uh, one of my friends that I owned a business with knew what had happened and she came over. And when the two people were there, I just fell apart. I sobbed and sobbed and deep racking sob for a while. And they weren't talking to me. They were holding me, but they were just letting me cry. And I think that that was essential for me at that point. And after that, for, for quite a while, I was um, still pretty still, not talking, not visiting with people, not really engaging. My daughter and my friend arranged everything for what needed to be taken care of. And I just kind of sat and it was okay. And I felt okay doing that. And it was entirely different with Ron because he had been in hospital for a week and was in, in really bad shape. I was up around the clock taking care of him because the nurses couldn't get into him frequently enough to take, do the care that he needed to have. So I haven't slept in a week. And Ron was saying, you know, we just need to go home. And, and so I said, we'll do whatever you want to do. And so the doctor came in and, Ron said, well, what are you going to do for me? And he said, well, we've done all these tests and they didn't work. Or we have given you all the medication for what you have right now. And none of that worked. And so I guess we're going to do some more tests. And Ron said, no, I don't want to hear about more tests. What can you do for me? What difference are you going to make for me? And he said, well, I don't really know that anything will make a difference for you. And he said, then I want to go home. And the doctor, instead of saying, okay, said, well, then you're going to have to go home against medical advice, and we're not going to send any medications home with you or anything. I think he was trying to scare him out of his decision. And he said, bring me the papers. So we we went home. Fortunately, we had had support that got things set up for us. and A good friend who worked for hospice who was able to get the hospice doctor to come in and, and get the medications for him because he didn't want to go on hospice. He hadn't accepted yet that he was at that point. But she wrote him the prescriptions that he needed to have that he'd have in the hospital. And a couple of days later, he we were talking and he said, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go on hospice now. It's okay. You can call him. So I said, okay. And then we started calling everybody he wanted to talk to, everybody he wanted to see. His friends came from the mainland over and stayed with us for a whole week. Our house and the houses around us were full of friends. And it was like a, a big party for the whole week. And anybody that he didn't get to actually see face-to-face and talk to, fortunately, he could FaceTime on his phone. And he talked to people that he hadn't talked to in years, people that he needed to say goodbye to or he needed to say something to resolve something with. He talked to every single person he wanted to. And we had music. We He was vegan. And I asked him what he wanted to eat. And he wanted Ribs and collard greens and cornbread and <laughs> apple pie. I said, okay, that's what I'm you sure want. That. That's what what we'll get. And so you know, the vegan went out the window, and that was fine. Nobody judged anybody about that. That was what he wanted, and the people were grateful to know what he wanted, so that they could get him what he wanted. And they had music going. People came and sang for him. People danced in his room. It it was just really kind of beautiful. And on. Oh, Thursday afternoon, he kind of went to sleep and stayed asleep. And then Friday evening, he stopped breathing and everybody was there and touching him and holding him. Sorry. It was, it was fabulous. It was really a good experience. And the wife of one of his friends that I didn't really know very well, just took me by the hand and took me back to my bedroom. And I sobbed like I did before sorry and and she she actually laid down on the bed with me and and held me as I did it and I saw the similarities between the sobbing both times so that was a like a cleansing something something that was what was enabling me to release to let go of whatever it was that I needed to let go of so that I could breathe again and realize that it was time for me to start taking care of myself
0: and you know I believe crying that deep guttural cry that's when you're truly in your heart you can't be in in your intellectual and stop like that you were in your heart sort of like cleansing your heart watering your heart that's so beautiful and your husband's having all his friends and saying goodbye or hello from you know not talking in so long what a gift he gave and that they Mm -hmm. gave him and that's where that law, that circulation, you know, yeah. that law of circulation comes in and people get complete that way mm-hmm. and they get resolved and hopefully significant events were brought up. Maybe someone needed for to be forgived mm-hmm. or they needed to apologize for them and vice versa. It is yeah. so beautiful. Thank you. and Our listeners, I'm not trying to, to get into the nitty gritty because I want to hear death. Even though it's so sacred, I think it's the most horrible and sacred thing that happens simultaneously. It's a teaching that you can walk through this event, living life on life's terms in whatever state you're in the hopeful, the knowing, the facts, and the humility, and being humble enough. To me, being humble and walking in humility means you're looking at the facts. Like, you know, you know when you know. And to acknowledge and accept it so like so he could do what he needed to do. So right Mm -hmm. now we're talking about the griever, which is you. And then there's the other side of your husband, his own experience of his last. Mm -hmm. And we don't have time to do that, but maybe we'll talk about that one day. And I'd love for you to come as you being a witness to someone Mm -hmm. and what they walk through through this experience. But our time is almost up. And so I'd like to talk to you, what lessons you gave us today. Oh, thank you for sharing so beautifully and from the heart, Emily. What's going on with you today? You have the book. Can you talk uh, briefly about your book? What's coming up? Something very exciting. And the podcast that you're going to be doing in
1: the future. Yes, my, my book is Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. And one of the main reasons that I wrote it was because all the books on grief that I kept trying to read didn't have something there to help me. They were telling me about things, but there wasn't real help. And so, this is the book that I wrote to offer help. In each chapter, at the end of the chapter, is something you can actively do. So that my book is "Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief," and that's the website lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com. And you can reach me through there. And I do lots of social media. I'm on all of it, trying to do whatever I can to share this concept of finding happiness even when you're grieving. And In doing that, I am developing, and it will will start very shortly, a group called the Grief and Happiness Alliance, which is a peer membership group where we will do writing through grief, which I have found very helpful for me and have been teaching it to others and they love it, and doing happiness techniques at the same time with meetings every week. And then my own podcast is going to launch toward the end of October. So I'd love to see you any place and contact me anytime. I love to speak to groups and anything that I can do for you, I would be grateful to do.
0: That's awesome. And everything's going to be in the notes in the podcast. We're on all the podcast platforms. She'll be coming out soon. And I am so honored that you came to talk to us today. And what's great, even if you're home by yourself, As much as what they say about social media, Facebook, or Instagram, I never would have met Emily if it wasn't for Instagram and us sharing Mm -hmm. what we do. And there's so many people, these groups that can help you. And please, while there's time to grieve alone and in solitude, there's time to reach out to others. Even if you're so afraid and your heart is pounding and you've never done it before and you don't know what the heck you're doing, Google it to say, how do I do Instagram? Instagram is, especially people who aren't as technology driven. Instagram is more when you have your phone. It works the best when you're on your phone. And Facebook is the phone or your computer, okay? So Emily, thank you again. I can't thank you enough. And I'm so excited that I got to meet a a peer of mine who is on this journey of grief recovery. And you're saying writing is a lot of what she talks about is writing through grief. A How lot. important is that? And so thank you. Aloha. Aloha means hello and goodbye, right? And love. And, and love. Oh, and I... the breath of life. It
1: means all four of those things.
0: Okay. And you who are grieving out there, who have a loved one in grief, or if you're not in grief, aloha to you from myself and aloha. We'll see you next time, everyone. And remember, we're on all the podcast platforms. We go out every Tuesday morning and also there's a grief recovery now private group. Please look for it. Just put in the search on Facebook grief recovery now private group. And I would love to have you on and I'll get you in there. And so I appreciate you everybody. Bye. Peace and love and harmony. We love you. Thank you for joining our grief recovery now journey. Like what you heard? It would be the biggest compliment to our mission if you would please subscribe, rate, and review Grief Recovery Now on Apple Podcasts. And we will keep you posted on our next podcasts. If you don't have Apple, we are also on Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Also, please join our private Facebook group, Grief Recovery Now. And if you are in need of any personal attention, please contact me with the link on this podcast page, which is Grief Recovery Method com forward slash GRMS forward slash Charlene dash Gorzella. It would be an honor to hear from you.